Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, I interview retired agent Bob Bazin, who served in the FBI for 28 years. Bob spent most of his career working property crime cases, and he developed a specialization in art crime. During the interview, he talks about studying the masters at the Barnes Foundation and investigating and discovering stolen art from all around the world while assigned to the Philadelphia Division. He reviews a case he worked with the Philadelphia Police Department of an armed robbery by gunpoint of a priceless sculpture, Man with a Broken Nose, from the Rodin Museum. Bob tells us how he took his love of art and used it to enhance his FBI career. Before we get to that interview, I need to acknowledge that I am recording this just days after the horrific, tragic events in Orlando. I'm saddened, I'm frustrated, and I'm angry. What I don't understand is how the average citizen can walk into a gun store and purchase an assault rifle. Now, for 26 years, I carried a gun every day, and I trained with the rifle and the shotgun, and I know how powerful they are. And I truly believe that only law enforcement and military personnel should be allowed to have assault weapons. I'm not trying to take anybody's pistols and revolvers and hunting shotguns away, but being able to purchase an assault rifle. I just don't get it. The last thing I want to say before we get to the interview, and we will get to the interview, is that I was in the FBI during that period of transition after 9-11. Working in the FBI during that period of time, I watched the Bureau change from a law enforcement agency to a national security agency, not just investigating crime, but trying to prevent crime. I hope you continue listening to FBI Retired Case File Review, but understand that we're reminiscing about a time and cases that are certainly different from what the FBI is facing today. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. And here's the show. Hi, everyone. I am excited to introduce you to my guest today, Bob Bazin. Hi, Bob. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing good. I know you have a great case that you're going to talk to us about. Could you give us a little tease? I worked on a bunch of cases dealing with stolen art. I had a specialty back in the 1980s until I retired in the investigation and recovery of stolen art. So this is one of the cases that I'm going to talk about today. I know that the art crime team for the FBI was created sometime around 2005. Do you know when that was created? Well, I retired in in 1997, so it was after me. (laughs) Okay, so um, although there is this art crimes team and they have agents working on art crime throughout the country on this uh, rapid deployment team, you were doing it way before then. That's correct. Yes, I was. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What were you doing before you got into the FBI? When did you come into the FBI? And uh, tell us a little bit about the offices that you were assigned to before you uh, started this art theft case. I grew up in the steel town of Gary, Indiana, and I was a probation officer with a juvenile court back then. And I was uh, quite successful at doing that, and so successful they made me a supervisor, which I hated. And so uh, the opportunity came, a high school buddy of mine that we played football together He quit his job as a teacher and became an agent and convinced me a year later to become an agent. So in January 6, 1969, I entered uh, training school and um, retired in uh, March of 1997. My first office of assignment was in New Orleans, Louisiana, in and I was on a property crime squad which dealt with... uh, mainly with bank robberies and anything doing with 
property crimes, stolen cars, truck hijackings, etc. The normal function was that you spent a year in your office, first office of assignment, and then you were transferred to your second one. So in March of 1970, I was transferred to Philadelphia, where I spent the rest of my career working cases. I loved to work in the street, and that's what I did. Now, were most of your cases property crime cases, or did you work other investigations? Predominantly, they were property crimes uh, cases. Probably the first uh, half of my career, I was on the bank robbery squad. Just a uh, college boy gunslinger, I guess. When you worked bank robbery cases, you didn't uh, get an opportunity for a nine-to-five kind of a job. So anyway, after that, uh, I, I principally worked interstate transportation of stolen property cases, which at that time included theft and recovery of stolen art. The New York division of the uh, FBI had a art squad uh, at the time, and I, and I certainly uh, worked off of their friendly advice and uh, expertise and sort of adapted it to my own style here in Philadelphia. Now, did you have an interest in art? I mean, was that something that you had always enjoyed and had studied? Well, unfortunately, I didn't study much but when I was in college, but I remember we had a, a, a lovely, lovely museum of art, and, and I loved to go through it. Didn't know that I would have the interest that I ultimately had. So I went to my supervisor and said, I had come up with this idea in talking to several people that I would like to start uh, working cases that dealt with the recovery and and theft of stolen art. And uh, he looked at me like I had three heads at the time, I think, and said, fine, because nothing had happened up to that point. About two weeks later, the Andrew Wyeth uh, robbery had occurred out in the county, and uh, even though I wasn't directly involved in it, it sparked a lot of interest in art in the Philadelphia area because of uh, him being so popular as an art, as an American artist. Now, was that particular case investigated by the FBI or local police? It was investigated by the FBI, but it was investigated by the resident agency out there. I did a little bit of uh, undercover work for it, but not of any substance. Was there a recovery in that particular case? Yes, all of the paintings were recovered, and several persons were arrested for the theft. Now, the particular case that you're going to tell us about, when did you first learn about the theft, and exactly what was stolen, and from where? Well, how I learned about it was interesting. The theft occurred on November the 23rd, 1988, and I picked up the Philadelphia Inquirer on December the 24th and was alerted to the fact that the Rodin Museum had been robbed the day before. So I picked up the phone and called Central Detectives Division of the Philadelphia Police Department and talked to two of the police officers, the, the, the detectives that were involved in the uh, case. So I went over there, and there was very little physical evidence. What had happened during the robbery was uh, basically at closing time on the 23rd, an individual walked into the museum, and he walked around there right before closing time and sort of made himself over to a particular sculpture called The Mask of the Man with the Broken Nose, one of Rodin's uh, famous, pain, uh, famous sculptures. And the guards could hear that he, only way to describe it, he had ripped the sculpture off of the pedestal. I, I, I mean, by ripping it, it was on Velcro tape. You could hear the the ripping of the Velcro. That uh, brought the attention of the guards. The three guards uh, rushed the guy and confronted him and asked him what he was doing, and he tried to play it off. And they finally started to grab the sculpture back, and he pulled the gun out. And it was a small caliber. It turned out to be a thirty-two caliber weapon. It looked like one of those cigarette lighters that looked like a gun and that you could pull the trigger and you could light your cigarette off it. 
these guards thought that that's what it was, and they sort of, yeah, 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 that's not a gun, you know. As they approached him, he squeezed around off into the wall. They became believers, and he put them on the ground, and he brought in his own handcuffs. He had brought them into the museum with him. He handcuffed them all and grabbed a sculpture and walked out of the uh, museum, not to be seen again for a while. Now, did he have more than one pair of handcuffs? Yes, he had he had three pairs of handcuffs. Wow, so it sounds like he may have been in the museum before and noticed how many guards were available at that time of the day. Uh, precisely. He had, uh, he had done his homework, absolutely. So that's what he did. He, he left the museum with, with the sculpture, and, and again, we had no physical evidence. We're sort of at a dilemma. The police department uh, had, a, had a sketch artist, and it wasn't a good likeness of the robber, of the unsub. No surveillance cameras back in 1988 in the art museum? No surveillance cameras, no, no alarm system as such attached to the particular items either. So yeah, we were in a, a real dilemma. So I had come up with the idea that, well, we've got nothing uh, at, at this point. Let's use the press to our advantage here. And what I had come up with, I would called the insurance company that had insured the Rodin Museum, which is part of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. The Rodin Museum is the second largest Rodin Museum in the, in the world. In fact, it's built the same way as the, museum, the Rodin Museum is in Paris. I've been fortunate to see both. So uh, the security officer at the Philadelphia Museum of Art who was also, of course, as I said, in charge of the Rodin Museum, is a former New York police detective. So I approached him along with the insurance company and said, look, I've got this idea. Why don't we publicize that there's a $10,000 reward offered for any information leading to the recovery of the Rodin sculpture? Can you tell us just a little bit about the sculpture itself? I mean, why this sculpture? Why the man with the broken nose? Well, it was small enough that it wouldn't be bulky enough. He could actually sort of put it under his arm and walk out. It wasn't that heavy. It was probably uh, the size of a, in roundness of a bowling ball. So, but it wasn't as heavy as a bowling ball. Was it famous? Was it valuable? It was very famous, and Rodin had, had done a lot of different studies of, and, and this was the final, which he had done, a, a, he'd done studies of most of his uh, uh, famous sculptures, and there were numerous studies of this particular uh, mask of the man with the broken nose, but this was, this was one of the final once he usually what he usually did was he would make a series of sculptures it would be a series of well let's take for example the thinker i believe there are 12 small copies of the thinker in the world and i believe there are only six large copies of the thinker, one of which is in the front of the Philadelphia Rodin Museum. So most sculptures, they, they work in series. They don't just make one. They make a series of them. And how about for the man with the broken nose? Were there uh, a number of those? And was a broken nose on purpose? I think the story behind it was it was a street person in the, in the Paris suburbs of where Rodin lived. And he literally had a nose that was smushed to one side. I think nowadays we call them homeless. Probably. And Rodin himself at the time, I believe, when he was making this sculpture, was in a real cold, drafty, tenement kind of a building. He didn't have a... He wasn't full of a lot of money at the... the this time in his life. 
So anyway, we had talked to this uh, the security officer at the uh, museum and offered the $10,000 reward. But I made sure that when they released the information that they said, please contact the following places. You can contact the FBI at this phone number. You can call the Philadelphia police at this extension. Or you can call the Philadelphia Museum of Art knowing full well that if I'm looking to get a reward, I'm not going to call law enforcement. So that's precisely what happened. We put a recording device on the phone of the, of the security uh, officers. Figure he would be able to tell because of his law enforcement background, you know, who was playing games and who was telling uh, the truth. And that's exactly what happened. We, we got a phone call from somebody uh, who turned out to be somebody that supplied us with, with information that was relative to identifying the ultimate uh, thief. Let's go back to the actual robbery. Um, I know just from dealing with, matter of fact, uh, one of your mentees uh, who gives you full credit for the success of his career, uh, Bob uh, Whitman. I know from uh, listening to him that in most cases, it's somebody inside who just kind of puts the uh, art object uh, under their jacket, usually it's taken from um, a storage area, and they walk off with it. This was a armed robbery. Is that something that happens often? As far as I know, this is still the only example of an armed robbery of a museum in the United States. There have been some in Europe, but this is the only one that I know of where an actual armed robbery occurred. The Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, there were two police officers that came in in the dead of night, but they never pulled guns or anything. Were they actual police officers? Well, we don't know at this point because it's still an unsolved case. But it was two individuals dressed as police officers. That's correct. Well, I'm really curious now um, as to you know, who this person is who's made this armed robbery. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll let you uh, put it back in in chronological order. So you have this uh, phone number for someone to call in, and you do have a person who talks to this museum security officer. What does he tell him? Well, the security officer then sort of confirms. He he records the conversation and then tells the person, he said, Look, I'm the security officer at the museum here. I don't really have uh, the access to the money. That's through the insurance company. Let me give you the name of the insurance agent and his phone number. And voila, I became the insurance agent. That was a bogus company, of course. And that person uh, ultimately called me and we began to negotiate and get more information. At first, it was a little sketchy, and the more I talked to him, the more I was able to stretch information out and got an area of where the individual, the the thief, uh, lived. I was uh, out in uh, the Overbrook section of Philadelphia, actually 6600 block, the person who is on the phone with you, how does he identify himself? Who does he say he is in relation to the person who robbed uh, the museum? Well, I had given him a um, an alias that he should uh, he should after I talked to him and and sort of satisfied satisfied my own curiosity that he knew what he was talking about. I said from now on. Uh, no names. When you call, just say that this is the ma- masked man that, that's calling. So that's what he would do. So we didn't have other people trying to horn in on his hopeful profits, the $10,000. Was he telling you that he had information, or did he admit that he was the person 
who had actually uh, taken the um, sculpture. No, he said he had information. He had uh, third-party information about who the person was that uh, that stole it, uh, and he knew what kind of vehicle the guy uh, drove and uh, where approximately in the city of Philadelphia he lived. Must step back for a second. Th- this original uh, police sketch that we uh, had done I got it modified through my my wife is a former school teacher and one of her friends was the uh, art teacher. Rather than send it all to Washington D.C. and try to talk with Washington, I talked with the guards and said, "How would you change the sketch you have here to bring it up to what you think the guy really looked like?" So they told me. I went to the art teacher. And she modified the the Philadelphia Police Department sketch. And after two or three sessions, I took it to the um, to the three guards, and they all confirmed, uh, separate from one another, that yeah, that's a real good likeness of the guy that was the thief. Could you describe him, or the way that they described him? Well, yeah, white male and. And they talked about, uh, you know, different facial features. They would modify the eyes and the mouth and things like that. And and the age. How old did they think he was? Somewhere in his uh, late 20s. Now that I have, from the mask man, I have uh, an area of the city that uh, I know the guy's from. I go out in that area of the city, and I'm looking for a particular vehicle that the guy has described to me, a pickup truck with a rubber back gate uh, on the truck, not a metal gate, and that he had a dog, a Malamute. This person that you're talking to on the phone, this masked man, Again, he's not saying he was the person. He's a third party. Did he explain to you how he had this information? Uh, Had he seen the sculpture? Had the person who took it told him about the robbery? What do we know about this person that you're talking to who thinks he's talking to an insurance agency? Actually, you. Well, I I, I know who the person is, and I still need to protect him over (laughs) over the years, but... He did not have any direct information about the theft. He had not seen the sculpture. He was getting his information from a third party who was supplying him with the information. And he would go back to that person and, I guess, have drinks with him or sit down and, you know, and they would chat more about it. And, yeah, the guy's got this kind of a pickup truck and lives out in this area and he's got this dog and... Now I've got something to to hang my hat on because even though I don't have a name at this point, what I do have is I have a good sketch of what he looks like. So as I'm out in the neighborhood in that area, I see a uh, postman. And I approach the postman and I said, is there a truck around that has... And I described the truck, and I showed him a picture of the of the drawing of the uh, of the sketch. And he said, "Yeah, the guy that owns that truck, that's him." So I knew I had a good sketch, you know. So at that point, he told me, of course, what address the guy was living in. So I was able to then go to the files and find out who lived at that uh, address. And that was a beginning because uh, even though I had a name, this particular person had never been arrested. So I, I didn't have a photograph to show the guards. So I got a surveillance van, and I, by this time I had found where the address was and that the truck was there, and it was parked there one morning. And, and our, our photographer at the, at, at the time, Mike Malloy, and Bob Whitman went out there with cameras and waited until the guy came out to get into his truck, and they just took as many photographs as they could of the guy. 
So with all of those photographs, we went, I went back and we went through them all and we selected the best photograph. And then I took agents and, and uh, support personnel, male members, that were about the same age as the, as this, uh, as the robber. And I set up a, a photographic spread, which was unique in itself because you have to, it's got to be similar. The photographs we had of him, there was shrubbery in the background. Well, you just can't show one photograph with shrubbery in the background and the other ones without. You can't do that. So I made it a very difficult uh, photographic spread as far as I was concerned and made sure that they were all looking in the same direction. It was really a good spread. I was working very closely with the Philadelphia police and called them and said I had this information and that I was en route to the Rodin Museum along with the... uh, the head of security, and we were going to show a photographic spread to the three guards, which we did do separate from one another. We were in the basement of the museum. We would bring each one down individually and show them the spread. Each one of them just went right to the guy and had him initialed the back of the photograph, and then we put him in a separate room away from the other two. We didn't want to taint this identification at all. We knew we had the person now. So the problem is we did not have a federal violation. We had a local violation because it was an armed robbery since the, the sculpture n- never left uh, the city. The reason the FBI was involved is there, there's a presumptive nature that this sculpture would probably make its way to New York or some place where there was enough money to buy such an item. And that would give you the interstate aspect of it that would make it a federal violation. Correct. So that's why we were involved in the initial investigation, along with, you know, learning to to do these kinds of crimes because most of them were of that nature that they left the the confines of, of the jurisdiction, you know. So we are at a point now where you have shown this photo spread to the security guard. They have all positively identified the photo that you've taken with the man with the rubber gate on his truck. And so you know who entered the museum on that day and uh, robbed the sculpture with the man with no nose. So what do you do next? Well, we had also learned during this period of time that every once in a while we'd go to that address and and that truck wouldn't be there. So upon further investigation, we found out that his mother had a real estate agency in Center City and that she lived in the 1700 block of Spruce Street. So the, the day that the Philadelphia Police Department got a warrant for his arrest, agents uh, accompanying the detectives from Central Detectives, we sent agents out to the Overbrook section looking for the truck, and which it wasn't there. We sent agents down in the 1700 block of Spruce, and the truck was there. And we knew by this time that the guy, the thief that we had a warrant for, was a real heavy drug user, real heavy drug user and that he was high all the time, and he was, he was very nasty when he, when he was high. So we staked out the address. We knew what the address was, and nothing was moving. So it was getting later and later in the morning, and knowing that he still had that gun, I was getting concerned about, about the crowds of people going out for lunch. So I radioed to the detectives and I said, I've got an idea. How about if I just go and, and ring the doorbell at uh, the mother's house? It was, a, it was a brownstone, so there were several apartments. And I would inquire as far as if there was an apartment for rent. This way I would wake him up at least. And if he were as bad a narcotics user as he claimed to be, just by waking him up, he would have to go and get a fix right away. 
So that's what I did. I rang the doorbell, nothing happened. Rang the doorbell, nothing happened. Pressed and hung on the doorbell. And finally, he grouching, yeah, you know, shouting in, what do you want? And I said, wow, well, I just wanted to know if there's an apartment for rent here. No apartment. I accomplished what I wanted to do. I woke him up. So I went back to my car and said, uh, I woke him up, and he should be coming out shortly. And within 10 or 15 minutes, sure enough, the door opened, and he walked out with his girlfriend. They were sort of in the middle of the block, and they started walking, and I followed. And we grabbed him and put him up against the wall, patted him down, and he had the gun that was used at the museum. I mean, subsequent uh, analysis, it was the same gun that was used. He was arrested for that and a couple of other crimes that he had committed. And I think he got seven and a half to 15 years for the multiplicity of, of crimes. He had also uh, shot at, at a grocery store manager that chased him after he had robbed him and and the thief, whose whose name happens to be Stephen She, realized that the manager in the grocery store was chasing him, and so he turned and fired a couple of rounds at him. So he was arrested and convicted of that crime, too. It was interesting, after I retired one night, the phone rang, and it was one of our ex-colleagues, uh, uh, Linda Vesey, and Linda said... Uh, are you watching channel, uh, whatever it was, six or ten or three? And I said, no, but I will. She said, well, turn on, see if you recognize. I turned it on, and there was a guy in a business suit robbing a bank, and it was Stephen She, after he had gotten out of serving seven and a half to 15 years. Well, that would be a helpful identification, you calling the... Uh, bank robbery squad and letting them know that you know exactly who that person is who robbed the bank. All right, so we know what happened to Stephen, the robber. What happened to the sculpture? Was it recovered? Well, we were now at, at his apartment, and we had gotten some information that was not real concrete, but we, we, we couldn't avoid it, that there was some information that Stephen had been digging in the backyard. So we got uh, metal detectors and shovels, and we went out and we dug for two or three days and found nothing, unfortunately. We didn't have any reason to believe that the sculpture was at the mother's house. We didn't have any probable cause to get a search warrant for that. But the interesting fact was that the owner of the home in Overbrook also was a part owner with Stephen She's mother at the Spruce Street address. So he said, you're welcome to search the rest of our residence on Spruce Street. So the co-owner gave you his consent to search. That's correct. So all of us sort of uh, uh, dirty and... and <laughs> grungy from from uh, shoveling for a few days we uh, okay well one more last ditch effort so so we all, all sort of hobbled over to uh, the spruce street address and we went down into the basement and there it was it was wrapped up in uh, some kind of uh, rags and it was next to some uh, some pipes like uh, sewer pipes just laying laying there so why the Rodin Museum? Why the man with no nose? Again, you know, my understanding is most art theft occur by people who love art. Did Stephen love art? I mean, why did, he, why did he rob this particular sculpture? The best I could come up with, because of course he didn't cooperate, he was, when we arrested him, he was, he was out of his mind, high, and, and there was no use talking to him. But we found out that he was such a heavy drug user that this was a way of paying off his drug deal to give him a valuable piece of uh, artwork. I don't know if he put a lot of thought into that before he actually 
uh, went through with the robbery. I would think that selling this particular sculpture would be very difficult. It would be very difficult for anybody to get uh, money uh, for from this uh, robbery. Well, you know, th- th- that was the essence of why I immediately went to the press, because by going to the press and advertising, Rodin Museum wasn't happy with me, nor was the Philadelphia Museum of Art, that I would put such a splash in the paper or, or conjure up a splash in the paper. And why is that? Well, they want, don't want to advertise that, uh, you know, that their collection possibly could be tampered with, you know. But my thought was, if I publicize it, I stop its movement. It's not moving anywhere. I mean, you can go to the most famous Rodin collector in this country and say, I've got a mask of the man with the broken nose. Would you like it? And he'd say, I don't think so. You know, so you stop it, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to stop its movement, you know, or we stopped it. Yeah, you stopped it to the point that it ended up wrapped in rags in the basement of a home, you know, on Spruce Street. Actually, the mask of the man with the broken nose is still in the Rodin Museum, and it used to be that you could walk in there and it was one of those sculptures you could go and rub the nose, so that the only part on the on the sculpture that was shiny was the nose. Well, when they got it back, they cleaned up the and and brought it back to its natural color rather than letting people mess with it anymore. So it's currently at the museum on display. Absolutely. And do you have any idea? And I know some of these pieces are you know, priceless, they say. But do you have any idea the value of this? At, at the time, uh, that particular work of art was probably, and this is in the 80s, it would probably be um, much more, much, much more than that today. It was in the one hundred dollars to $200,000 bracket and, and probably closer to millions today. You know, so you you never had a chance to actually speak to uh, the the robber about this and to get his rationale about making a armed robbery of art. Well, we had picked up some uh, information. He had gone to a friend of his that had some dealings with the art community, and that that friend suggested a way of making money and that uh, that friend probably is the one that that suggested the, uh, the the armed robbery perhaps not realizing that the guy was going to actually do it you know but anybody that uh, was strung out on drugs as bad as this guy was strung out and he was really bad one of the worst in my career I've ever seen so this um, basically was the act of a, a desperate man. Desperate man to get more money to feed his uh, habit, yeah. Yes, absolutely. How long after you had expressed an interest to your supervisor that you wanted to work art crime did this particular uh, art robbery uh, occur? Well, this happened in 1988, and and actually I... I showed interest in the early 80s, 80, 81, in fact, uh, interest to the point that the FBI sent me for two years to study under the tutelage of the people at the Barnes Foundation. While I was at the Barnes Foundation, I think the first case that happened was uh, not of a case that, that I was initially impacted in. It, it, it was a doctor that lived in Rittenhouse Square. His name uh, was Frank Waxman, Dr. Waxman. And Dr. Waxman, in, in the final analysis, had uh, we had recovered 172 works of art from his penthouse apartment. He had been stealing art all over the country, mostly New York City. The one that 
brought him down was he had stolen a Rodan, another Rodan. I was involved in four Rodan situations, but uh, anyway, he had stolen uh, from a gallery in Los Angeles, and he had made the mistake. He signed an alias, but he left a correct phone number of somebody he was visiting. Again, I wasn't involved in that initial investigation. I came in after the Philadelphia police and the Los Angeles police had identified him. And since they were overwhelmed by the amount of artwork they had, which was a great way to start my whole investigation on on the theft and recovery of stolen art, because in essence, what you ended up doing is you ended up having 172 separate investigations. It took years to get all of those things back to the rightful owners. And now this particular case was a federal violation because most of the artwork that the doctor had stolen were stolen from outside uh, the Pennsylvania area. Uh, Yes, but since there was a a local jurisdiction already involved in it, we relented and and they... He spent some time in the L.A. County Jail, which I understand is not a pleasant place. Now, you mentioned the Barnes Museum. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that is? And you said you studied there for two years. Uh, Could you explain that to the listeners? Yeah, the Barnes Foundation now is, is, it used to be out in Lower Marion by St. Joe's University when I went to school there. It's now actually right next to the Rodin Museum. Dr. Albert Barnes, he was quite an art collector. I mean, he, he actually went to Paris and hung around with uh, the Cezannes and the Matisses and bought their, their artwork. The Barnes Foundation has the largest collection of Cezannes in the world, both private or public. They have 69, I believe, or of Cezanne. Mixed in that, they have Picassos, and they have, uh, you name it, they've got uh, Monet's. They have uh, a a lovely collection of art. Now, you were saying that the uh, Bureau, the FBI, actually paid for you to study there for two years. At the time, were you the only FBI agent that was developing this kind of expertise in art crime? I certainly was the only one here. As I mentioned earlier, the New York office had uh, agents doing this kind of work, whether they had the same expertise. Uh, I, I can't answer that. I'm, I'm sure Margaret Dennedy, who was the supervisor at the time, certainly had the background, but uh, I don't know if there were m- many members of her squad that did. This training that you received at the Barnes Foundation, what did it provide for you as far as an investigator? I mean, it obviously had some benefit. Could you explain what this did as far as helping you be a better agent working these type of cases? Well, you got to learn uh, to see art rather than look at art. And I mean that by what they taught me was to look for color and for line and for brush stroke and for things of that nature. Really, I mean, you weren't looking at photographs when you had a lecture. Lectures went from noon to 4 o'clock every Wednesday. So I I used the experts as much as possible. there were some questions. I remember I had a an occasion. One of our field offices had a question about some paintings that they had belonging to Picasso and to Alexander Calder. And even the photographs it just didn't look right. And I had concluded in my own head that the reason I didn't think they were was for the following reason color was wrong, and the structure was, was wrong, lines were wrong, etc. But not to be cocky about it, I had expert there. 
So I took it to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and I went to Andy Anacourt, who has since passed, and uh, I showed Anne, and much to my pleasure, what I had learned at the Barnes, she had confirmed the same reasoning that I used. I didn't tell her that, but, but I walked away saying, I must have learned something. And it sounds like in going to the Barnes and in that initial case with the doctor, it also allowed you to, to develop relationships with the art community and the museum community. Very much so. It was helpful not only here, but in New York City and in some of the auction houses and uh, in, in the art community, the different communities. I mean, it was not only paintings that we were involved in. We were involved in the recovery of old manuscripts, like from University of Penn. University of Penn, we recovered an original copy, only six in the world, of Hamlet, and they had one. Well, unfortunately, they didn't have one. And Turned up missing, it sounds like. And we got it back for them, and it, and it was worth a million dollars at the time that, that we got it back. So there, were, there was a variety. It wasn't only paintings. It was uh, furniture. It was maps. It was uh, di- different types of, of, of artwork, um, whatever one might consider artwork, you know. Any additional information that you'd like uh, the listeners to know about your career? Well, as I said, I retired in 97, but I still keep my toes in the uh, warm water. And uh, I'm presently looking for a Norman Rockwell painting that was stolen in 1976 from a private residence in, uh, in Cherry Hill. Why don't you describe it? Maybe one of the listeners has seen it, and they can uh, give you a call and let you know. It's uh, it's of a young boy sitting under a tree with a garden hoe and his dog sitting next to him. It's not one of Norman Rockwell's like Thanksgiving Day, but it was the cover of the Saturday Evening Post at one point. So my wife and I do a lot of traveling and one of the first things we do is is go to to the museums of the particular country and well that's great then that a job that you took you know as a as an FBI agent helped you morph into a art expert and art lover no i wouldn't say that i i, I have a specialty in the recovery and in investigation of stolen art but i'm not an art expert there's a wonderful story. The, the uh, Russian-Jewish artist uh, Mark Chagall, years ago, uh, Madame Chagall and Mark Chagall were at a gallery in, in New York for uh, an opening for, for his, uh, his art as they're going through and looking and admiring all of the works that, uh, that Chagall did. Uh, his wife turned to him and said, my dear, this is some of the finest work you've ever done. He said, my dear, none of it is mine. They were all forgeries. There are some fine people in this, in the city of Philadelphia that are just cream of the crop as far as being so helpful in... Uh, in uh, authenticating art? Yeah, absolutely. The Philadelphia Museum of Art has been nothing but, uh, but helpful in in our endeavor to, to get anybody's artwork back. didn't have to be theirs. We've had a very interesting chat about art. Thank you so much, Bob, for talking to me today. My pleasure. Always good seeing you. And that's the end of the episode. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Bob Bazin. You'll find a photo of that sculpture, The Mask of the Man with the Broken Nose, a newspaper article about the FBI's art crime team, a link to the FBI website overview of the art crime team, and a newspaper article from back in the day about Bob's arm robbery of the Rodin Museum case. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends and family and share it on social media. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the show notes, you have all of the social media share buttons. 
Now, I have to admit, I might have been a little overdramatic during the intro. Of course, the FBI is still investigating art crime. They're still investigating organized crime, narcotics and kidnappings, white collar crime investigations, corruption, all of the things that we talk about on FBI Retired Case File Review. But so much more, the FBI is terrorism. I guess doing this podcast and talking to other retired agents is my way, is our way of reliving our glory days. And I am so grateful to hear how much you're enjoying the show. I received a wonderful email earlier this week, and I had to read just a few sentences from it because it really made my day. It's from Catherine Krauss, and Catherine says, I like that your podcast is different from the same old Just the Facts, ma'am, retelling of a crime story from start to finish that only focuses on the villain and the victim. As a crime fiction writer, you know how important character development is, and hearing the agent's backstory enriches the story and is often a great story on its own. I like hearing how the agents think, and what motivates them, and how experiences affect them personally. True crime as a category doesn't have to fit in a little box, just because that's the way a lot of other podcasts do it. You have a unique background to offer your listeners, as well as connections to agents with interesting stories. I would love to listen to agents just sitting around telling stories and highlights from their career. Thank you, Catherine. That made me feel so good. Because I listen to Serial and Real Crime Profile, and I enjoy those shows, but that's not what I'm trying to be. And I'm so glad that you get me and that you appreciate it. And I thank everyone who has taken the time to listen to FBI Retired Case File Review. I do have another thing I'd like to ask you, though. As you've heard me mention, on September 20th, I'll be releasing my first novel. It's called Pay to Play. And it's about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. And it is inspired by an actual FBI case. I invite you to visit my website, read the first two chapters of the book. If you're interested in following me on my author journey, I would also like to invite you to join my crime fiction newsletter. The next newsletter will be out in July, right after I come back from Thriller Fest, which is the convention for the international thriller writers. Uh, I'll be going for my fifth year, and I'm sure I'll find lots of things to write about in the next newsletter. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. Thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again next week for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.